This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Robin O'Brien. She's a globally recognized voice in the food industry and has been called Foods Erin Brockovich by the New York Times. Her TED Talk, based on her book, The Unhealthy Truth, exposes the shortcomings of our food system and has been viewed millions of times. It has influenced policy, legislation, and product formulation. For the past 15 years, Robin has advised CEOs and executives at multinational CPG companies, startups, and farm organizations. She's the co-founder and managing director at Replant Capital, a financial services firm ambitiously determined to reverse climate change through the deployment of a series of proprietary funds focused on U.S. farmers and their transition to regenerative and organic agriculture. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much for everything that you've done. And thank you for having me today. Yeah. And I I think anyone that follows me knows that I speak very openly. I believe in giving credit where credit is due, but I read your book and it changed my life. It changed the trajectory of my nurse practitioner career. Certainly everything that I was doing and thinking about on so many levels, I am where I am today because I read your book. And I laugh about the fact that I remember reading the book while my older son was doing Taekwondo and I was trying to chase after my probably five-year-old, which you have boys, so you understand they're constantly moving. And I would read a chapter at a time. And it was so disturbing to me that I did not know this information. And so I applaud you for getting mad when you had a child with a reaction to eating what we constitute as fairly benign food. And you dove down that rabbit hole So I would love for you to share with listeners, obviously, I know your story, but I would love for you to share with them, what was the impetus for really learning about how our food is produced, what additives are in our foods, the things that are driving food allergies and food sensitivities. Obviously, for full disclosure, my oldest son has life-threatening food allergies. And you know, for me, he hasn't outgrown them, only about 30% of children do. So he will live probably for the rest of his life with allergy, severe anaphylactic reactions to tree nuts and peanuts. And you talk a lot about the growing escalation of food allergies in children. So I'd love for you to share your story. Obviously, it's really interesting and very, very relevant to your journey. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, as you were describing how it changed your life, it gave me the chills because in the early years of my work, it was incredibly isolating and it was a very, very lonely journey in the early years. And now, you know, 15 years later to have people reach out and say, you changed my life or I did this, or I started this company. Never in a million years did I expect that kind of courage to yield that kind of result. At the time, as I was learning this information, I couldn't stay silent. It felt toxic to hold it. I truly could not unlearn it and I could not hold it. And I struggled with that, with the enormity of that. And I knew that people would question me in all kinds of ways. But, you know, back then, 15 years ago, people weren't talking about genetically engineered foods. We weren't as aware of food as we are today. You know, so much has happened in the last 15 years. And now with access across Instagram and Facebook and all these different platforms, we're a lot more connected. But you have to sort of go back to 15 years ago when organic was still sort of perceived as lifestyle of the rich and famous. Mm -hmm. It was a very niche 
category. It was very kind of on the coast. So you saw it in New York and you saw it in California, but I'm from Texas and you didn't really see a lot of it in Texas back then. And so, you know, my background is finance. I was an investment professional. I was an analyst that covered the food industry. I worked with a team of absolutely great guys. And because I was the only woman, they said, cover the food industry. And I was like, I'm not your girl. You know, I was totally addicted to Diet Coke and I ate a bunch of processed junk. You know, I was not that person. So when I was covering the food industry as an analyst, it was a really mechanical thing, which was great for me because your heart's not involved. And it was just spreadsheets and numbers and learning why they were taking out all of the real ingredients and putting in these artificial things. And it was driving margins and it made a ton of sense. And that's where I was right out of business school before I became a mother. And then you kind of flash forward about five years and suddenly I was having my fourth child. Again, you know, I had had these three older children, nothing. And I had a couple of friends that had children with food allergies and, you know, just didn't understand the condition. I thought, okay, you know, it's kind of a pain, but I'll do this for my friends. And then, you know, as life tends to hand it to you, you know, I was given this fourth child and she had a severe allergic reaction one morning over a plate of scrambled eggs. I didn't know it was an allergic reaction. So she started to get fussy over breakfast and I thought "Mm, she might be tired. So I took her upstairs at about nine o'clock in the morning and I, I put her down for a morning nap. And, you know, having had four children, usually if I put a child down for a nap, I just put a child down. And for some reason, which I still will never be able to explain, I just got the chills again. I went in and checked on her that morning and her face was swollen shut. And I remember looking at her and thinking like, what has happened to her face? And I scooped her up and I looked at the older kids and I said, did you put something in her face? And they gave me those really blank stares where you just know they don't know what you're talking about. And that was terrifying. So I thought, what is happening to this child? And I called the doctor and she said, this sounds like an allergic reaction. For all of the listeners out there that have had this experience, it is one of the most terrifying things you go through as a parent. You feel completely out of control. And here I had been, you know, on a full scholarship to business school, worked at the investment group, you know, managed $20 billion in assets. And here I was standing with this child thinking, I don't know what to do. And so we get her to the pediatrician. She says, this is an allergic reaction. She starts rattling off the statistics of food allergies and how you have these top eight allergens like Mm -hmm. eggs and wheat and milk and all these things. And I'm thinking, oh my God, how am I going to feed this child? And not only how am I going to feed her, how am I going to keep her safe from these three older siblings that wouldn't understand that she can't have this or that. And so, you know, all of a sudden, what I expected motherhood to look like suddenly just got scrapped. And I'm standing there thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm terrified. I don't want to hurt this child. I don't know how to protect this child. I hadn't thought about all of these different things. And so, you know, as most of us do, when you're first beginning to learn about food allergies, it is so overwhelming because you realize they can be labeled, you know, milk can be called casein in these ingredients. I'm reading these ingredient panels and I'm thinking, what in the world is this stuff? Oh my gosh, you know, how am I going to keep my kids safe? And It was, you know, I was blissfully unaware up until that moment, as most of us are, you know, I mean, I just, I trusted that if things were on the shelf, they weren't going to harm my family. And as I started to read labels, you know, like most of us, when you really read those labels, you're like, what the hell is this stuff? Mm -hmm. And so as I began to research food allergies, what I did was, you know, I had been an analyst. So I had been a number cruncher. This is an incredibly emotional topic, whether you're talking about food allergies or food, it is emotional. So I thought, I just want to see the data because I got to get away from the emotion here. And as I started looking at the statistics, that was 
probably one of the saddest periods of my life when I began to understand what had happened to the health of the American children across the board. So when I was trying to find statistics on food allergies, the CDC doesn't actually count food allergy deaths. They count asthma deaths, which have skyrocketed. And as those who have a child with food allergies know that when your child goes into an allergic reaction, the airways are constricted. Interestingly, the CDC, if a child dies from that airway constriction, marks that death as an asthma death, not as a food allergy death. So the data was murky and it's not all neatly packaged in one little food allergy file at the CDC or wherever. And so as I began to pull this data on what was happening to the American children, you know, it was absolutely jaw dropping to understand that one in three Caucasian kids born in the year 2000, which is my oldest child's class, she's now 21, one in three and one in two minority children in that class are expected to be insulin dependent by the time they reach adulthood. I mean, they have done nothing to deserve that. And I thought, okay, that's my daughter's oldest class. One in three kids now have what are called the four A's, allergies, autism, ADHD, and asthma. One in three kids, okay, kids have done nothing to deserve that. But the data that absolutely dropped me was the president's cancer panel. And at the time that I unearthed this data, the panel had been assembled under the Bush administration and the report had been released under the Obama administration, which I really appreciated because it meant that this wasn't a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. And the data that came through that report said that cancer was the leading cause of death by disease in American children under the age of 15. So I got to where I would be at the park with the children or I'd be dropping them at preschool and I would be looking at these kids and I would just see statistics and I thought, oh my gosh, like, why is no one talking about this? And at the time, like every headline was about obesity. And I'm like, there's so much more going on here. And so as I began to really understand, you know, what was happening to the health of kids, you know, as you're looking at cancer statistics, one in three women and one in two men are expected to get cancer in their lifetime in the United States. And I thought, you know, why aren't we talking about this and what can be done preventatively? Because it wasn't like this 30 years ago. It wasn't like this 40 years ago. When we were all kids in school, we had PB&Js and we had cartons of milk and they weren't loaded weapons on a lunchroom table. So, you know, again, it was sort of like, what has changed? What has changed? And so at that point, I just went full analyst mode, you know, because I was trying to control something that felt totally out of control. And the way that I did that was through research. And so I began researching, you know, all of the different inputs. And, and I set up a system that I had used when I was an analyst to capture data and to capture headlines. So every morning I'd wake up and I'd open my computer and there'd be a file and a bunch of emails that had come through relevant to what I was researching, which was food allergies. And in October of 2007, Michigan State University received a small grant from the EPA. And the title of this particular article that morning was, Do Genetically Engineered Foods Cause Food Allergies? I had never heard of a genetically engineered food back then. So I started researching this stuff and I'm like, okay, I have no idea what these things are. And I had covered the food industry as an analyst and we hadn't talked about this. So that was my first call was back to the guys on the desk and saying, why didn't we cover genetically engineered food on all these chemicals that go with genetically engineered foods? And they said that was actually covered by the chemical industry analysts. And I said, but we're eating this stuff. And they're like, this is how it was covered here. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. So then I called the researcher at Michigan State University and I contacted him and I just said, what's going on? And he said, well, these ingredients, these genetically engineered ingredients were introduced without any animal testing studies. And I thought, so we, we are, we are that animal testing study. 
And the data that the CDC did have on food allergies, while they didn't count deaths, they count hospitalization rates. And there had been a 265% increase in the rate of hospitalizations from you know, 1995 until 2005. It was in about a 10-year period. And I thought, okay, correlation is not causation. I'm an analyst. I know that. But a correlation of this magnitude merits an investigation. No one was doing that investigation. So I thought, I have to do this investigation. Like, what is going on? And when I learned that the United States was one of the only developed countries to introduce these ingredients into our food system without labels, that felt so offensive. I thought, you know, what have they done to us and to what we believe to be patriotic about transparency and all these things of freedom of choice that we hold so dear. And it really challenged a lot in my belief system. But I realized, you know, there was this double standard. And I think the most like screamingly obvious part of it was when I realized that like our own food companies were making products with genetically engineered ingredients and all this artificial junk for here in the US. And then they make that exact same cereal bar or that exact same cookie overseas without genetically engineered ingredients, without artificial colors, without high fructose corn syrup. And I thought they already know, like they know they've got this higher integrity product that they sell to moms and families in Europe. And yet here in the US, we get this cheaper, junkier stuff because it drives margins. I mean, I knew that as an analyst, that's why. And because we weren't making any noise. And so at that point, I spent the next several months kind of swinging between a very deep and dark despair. It was a very, very dark time. Realizing that I would have to say something on this and at the same time being absolutely terrified too. I came at that point, my family was so, you know, we were just never taught activism. We weren't an activist family. We were a conservative Texas family. And I was terrified to step forward on it. And so I researched people that had presented controversial things I studied the work of Martin Luther King Jr. And I thought, you know, he used love when he was presenting civil rights issues. And then I studied Harvey Milk and how he used gratitude when he was presenting issues around the LGBTQ community. And then, you know, I studied others like Al Gore where they tried to use fear. And I thought fear shuts me down. Like fear just shuts me down. So I knew I had to use love and gratitude and not fear. And I have maintained that for my entire career, that this knowledge is a gift. And just as you are so thrilled to give someone you love a gift, that's how I feel about this information. Sometimes people aren't ready to receive a gift. And so you just sort of put it behind you up on the shelf and you wait until they're ready. They always come around, some sooner, some later, but they will always come around. And so to hold this knowledge with that kind of love and that kind of gratitude is something that I have maintained since the very beginning. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. 
And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remarkable remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators the mitochondria new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at timeline.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com dot com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. Really powerful. You know, there was a quote that kept kept coming up when I was doing my research for our interview and your quote was courage is contagious. It's part of our story. And so, you know, you were so incredibly courageous because the easier thing to do would have been to have this degree of cognitive dissonance where you're like, I didn't just read that. I didn't just see that this didn't really happen to me. It's not related to the food that we're giving to our families. And so thank you so much for your advocacy and transparency, because, you know, even for myself, even with all the training, all the medical training I have, you know, I trained at a big research institution. I had never read this kind of information before. And it was so disturbing, which is why I had to read a chapter at a time. And then every single person I spoke to, I was like, you have to read this book. This Mm -hmm. book is going to change your life. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into some of the issues with the food industry. And I know this is proliferative, but I think it's important to provide context about some of the things that are in the food industry right now that are contributing to why we have double standards for products that are made here versus the UK you know, why we have issues with supporting local farmers and organic farming in particular. And then, you know, kind of talking about subsidized 
foods, you know, farm subsidies and how that's kind of contributing to the problems that we're seeing. And it's interesting. I was just in Nebraska for a business event for somebody I'd ever been in, in Omaha or Nebraska and had a completely different feel, you know, being there talking to local farmers because they mm-hmm. happen to be some of the sponsors for the event and recognizing that people really do want to do what's right, you know, not just for their businesses, but, you know, producing a really incredible product and how on so many levels, things have been so incredibly bastardized. Right. So, you know, I think getting back to the very beginning of your comments, when you said you had, you know, gone to school and studied all these things and never learned that you actually have to start there. Mm-hmm. And the answer consistently across all of this is follow the money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the medical schools are sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry And in the United States, sickness sells. There is so much money to be made in healthcare and disease management. We spend more money on healthcare and disease management than any other country on the planet. So you have to start there. And unfortunately, you have to realize that your sickness and your conditions are a business model and that prevention actually hampers that business model. Other countries around the world take a different approach. They say, you know what? We're going to provide universal health care. And when they commit to that, they therefore have an incentive to prevent disease. Because if you're providing universal health care, that means we all pay for it as taxpayers. So you don't, I don't want you to get sick because that means my taxes are going up. You don't want me and my kids to get sick because yours are going to go up. So there's actually an incentive in place to maintain health and wellness in a country that does not have a for-profit medical system. We have for-profit medical. We're one of, you know... We stand out in global, you know, profiles because that's what we've chosen to construct. And there's been a lot of money that's been made in that. But as a result, when you speak to doctors and, you know, I think some of the most eye-opening comments come from doctors that are like, I went through the entire trajectory of medical school and had maybe one hour of diet and nutrition. You know, I have a really dear friend from high school, Garth Davis. He wrote a book called Proteinaholic, which you should read next. And, you know, he is so candid about what he thought versus what he learned. That same sort of game-changing knowledge that came along the way when he realized like he just flat out as a doctor had not been taught this Mm -hmm. stuff. And it's a pretty humble thing to have to confess. So I think on the medical side, there's that. And then the same thing goes, you know, follow the money when it comes to the food industry. Just as we saw the tobacco industry really influence legislation and influence science with their money and with their lobbying, the same thing has happened in the food industry. And so because these are US-based companies, their ability to lobby and influence legislation here in the United States is tremendous and very powerful and much more powerful here than it would be in the UK or Europe or Australia or China. And so what has happened is, you know, they have this enormous influence over how this stuff is legislated here. They get the green light, you know, things get fast-tracked, things get generally, the term is generally recognized as safe. G-R-A-S, generally recognized as safe until guess what? It's not. And so, you know, the flip side of that is you actually have to prove that this is safe. And in other countries, that's the ownership is on the brand to actually do the research to prove that something is safe. So what has happened is that we get these, as you said, bastardized products here in the United States. We get the artificial stuff when families in other countries get the real stuff. 
And that double standard to me was intolerable. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, there is no family, there is no child that deserves this. There's not a single person that deserves this. So why are we doing this? Well, so you continue to follow the money and you realize that rather than our tax dollars supporting healthcare as they do in other countries and providing all this incentive for all of us to stay healthy and well, our tax dollars actually support the growing of our foods with these genetically engineered ingredients and chemicals. And I thought, you know, if I had a choice, how would I choose my tax dollars? You know, do I really want my tax dollars supporting these farm subsidies that subsidize this genetically engineered operating system and this portfolio of chemicals required to grow them? No, I don't think anybody would. And I thought about it, you know, my grandmother passed a couple of years ago. She was 108 years old and so insanely smart. And I remember telling her about this and she said, Robbie, that's just so scary. That is so scary. And I said, you know, grandmother, I said, you know, when you guys, when you were raising your boys, you just had corn. It was corn, you know? I said, now we've got this genetically engineered corn that's been genetically engineered to produce its own insecticide internally within the plant as it grows. You can't wash that off. You cannot wash that off. And I thought, that's why we need labels, because any decent human being would want to know and have the choice between that kind of corn that our grandmothers ate, which was corn, or genetically engineered corn that's been created to release its own insecticide. And so, you know, without that transparency, without that information, we're all blindly eating corn, thinking it it's the same as what our grandmothers ate. It looks the same as what our grandmothers ate, but it is patented at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office as this genetically engineered product because of its unique characteristics and traits. So, you know, that was really where we could catch them was at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office because they tried to claim that these things have existed for thousands of years. Then why are they patented from 1984 on as they entered into the food supply in the 1990s for their novelty and their uniqueness by these chemical industries and the doctors that work for them. So it's very much a tobacco industry moment, I think, in the food industry when we realize that these chemical companies have done that. You know, the you look back, you can Google, you know, those old cigarette ads where the doctors are saying, you know, nine out of 10 doctors recommend Marlboro or whatever it was, you know, it's similar here. And so as I looked at that, you know, again, being a math and a finance person, I thought we aren't given a choice in the transparency of what we're feeding our families. But at the same time, the way that our dollars are being used to subsidize this really toxic system. And at that point, you know, organic really was very much kind of whole foods, whole paycheck, lifestyle, the rich and famous. And thankfully, you know, the work that I've done over the last 15 years has really been to push to democratize it. You know, my personal mission is to make clean and safe food affordable and accessible to anyone and all who want it. And every chapter of my career has modeled that. Now with what we're doing at Replant, it was born out of working with these companies when I realized even the CEOs were feeding their families organic. 85% of us choose organic. 75% of all grocery store categories now carry organic. You can find it in 7-Eleven. You can find it in Costco. You can find it in Walmart. Thank goodness. The problem is that only 1% of our farmland is organic. So if we're all eating all this organic, which we all are at this point, how are we doing this if only 1% of our farmland is organic? And why aren't we actually growing the food here in the United States that American families want to eat? So that became my latest you know, chapter, which is Replant Capital, which is really helping these multinational food companies that weren't my biggest fans 15 years ago, after years of really informing and educating, now they're recognizing we have to convert our supply chains. 
So that's the transition that has to happen. And, you know, it very much is, it's an idea whose time has come because as we transition this farmland, you know, we're helping the American farmer, the kids that have worked on that farm that don't want to come back to the farm because of the chemicals that are used are suddenly saying, you know, I will come back Mm -hmm. if you're farming regeneratively and organically. So there's a legacy issue that we're addressing, you know, in these farm families, which is amazing. You're getting the chemical inputs off of that farm, which is taking that the debt that the farmer had been required to go into to finance genetically engineered foods and all of those chemicals that are required to grow them. All of a sudden, when you kind of cut that off, you're also cutting off the debt that's required. So farmers are saying, okay, if I step back from chemical inputs and I learn how to manage the soil, it's a transition for sure. Mm -hmm. So instead of spending money on chemical inputs, they're spending money on a technical assistance guy that can come out and show them exactly what to do in Kansas. Once you learn that, you can't unlearn that. And Mm -hmm. so that transition, that's what we're tackling is that three to five year transition to help get the capital flowing to the farmers so that they can start to grow the kinds of foods that American families want to eat. And then I think, you know, the part that I just love is that their families are coming back. And, you know, I asked a guy in Georgia, Will Harris at White Oak Pastures, I said, what's the best part of your conversion to regenerative and organic agriculture? And he said, my girls came back to the farm. Oh, so beautiful. I think that the average person really doesn't understand the magnitude of farming debt that is involved when working with these companies. One thing that I read as I was doing my prep was that it's $426 billion worth of farming debt. And that is a direct interrelationship with the fees that the farmer is required to spend to buy specific type of seed, not heritage seed, but the specific, whether it's Monsanto or what other company, and Monsanto is just the big one that I think of, but all of the farming practices that kind of come along with that. And it keeps these farmers, I mean, they're forced essentially financially to continue on this path. So I love that you're starting to change that narrative and really to do it in a way that's focused on the positive and the regenerative agriculture piece. And so for the benefit of listeners who may not be as familiarized with the term regenerative agriculture, and I've had the opportunity to connect with Rob Wolf, and I know he's particularly, you know, savvy in this area as well, but I'd love for you to just explain that the differences between kind of the conventional, you know, farm debt industry versus, you know, transitioning to this new locally done, you know, focused on, you know, I always say locavore and organic, but really getting back to basics, getting back to soil quality, which is something that's really been greatly diminished over the last probably 30 plus years, because we're essentially taking what used to be a relatively healthy plant where there was probably not as much monocropping, you know, now it's a lot of monocropping where the soil content is really poor, but now we're kind of transitioning back to what I would consider to be probably the way that we farmed, you know, 50 or hundred years ago. Yeah. I would actually caution not to say that because the industry loves to use that against us. I would say that we can pull from the indigenous wisdom of, you know, decades past and marry it with technology from the 21st century that can accelerate this transition to healthy soils. So we're not going backwards. We're actually going forwards and we're leveraging the best of the knowledge that we hold as an industry, as a country, as a globe. But yeah, so, you know, what happened in the mid-1990s was this just rapid transition to this genetically engineered operating system. And it changed everything for the farmer. Because up until that point, the farmer had been allowed to save his seeds. And as they 
grow things and catch the seeds and save them. They can repurpose the seeds into the next harvest, into the next season. And there's no money that's required because you're saving seeds Mm -hmm. from crop to crop to crop. With the introduction of genetically engineered crops and this patented technology, it was illegal for the farmer to save the seed because it wasn't his to own. It was a patented technology owned by these agrochemical companies. So all of a sudden, the farmer, instead of just being able to save the seeds and you know, begin again the next season, he instead had to go to the bank, take out a loan, go to the chemical company and purchase the seeds. And that became an incredible recurring revenue model, as you know. I mean, again, it's like these agrochemical companies were brilliant because they said, you know what, if we're going to increase our share price, we've got to increase revenue. So all of a sudden, a farmer who didn't have to buy seeds every year suddenly has to buy seeds every year. Well, that's great for the revenue of the agrochemical company. It's terrible for the farmer because he's taking on more and more debt. And as you mentioned, you know, today, American farmers carry 426 billion in debt. I mean, the average farm carries so much debt. There is no other entrepreneur, no other family we would ask to do this, you know? And so, you know, realizing that that fundamental shift had happened, not just in the way that we grow food because they're taking on the debt to purchase the seeds, then they have to buy all the chemicals to treat the seeds and they have to buy the chemicals to grow the crops. So it's just a ton of debt to use this new genetically engineered operating system. And it really, I think, you know, in the early years, the promise was that it was going to increase yields. What happens when you chemically treat a farm year after year after year, now 20 years into this experiment, is that the microbiome of the soil is destroyed. And for anybody in health and wellness, we talk a lot about the microbiome of the gut. And so it's pretty darn similar when you're thinking about the microbiome of the gut and how we know now, you know, there are certain things that when you put those things in your gut, it's going to make it worse. There are certain things when you put them in your gut is actually going to help restore healthy, you know, microbiome. Same goes for the soil. And so what happened was the farmers started to realize that these chemical inputs were harming the soil and they were harming the water quality around their farms. And so it was this sort of awakening and reawakening because the farmers of color will tell you they never had access to that capital. It was highly discriminatory 96% of our farmers are white and 70% of them are male. So that lending structure was highly, highly discriminatory. The silver lining is that farmers of color and indigenous farmers never had access to the debt levels. And so they maintained this soil stewardship. They were never able to shortcut with the chemical inputs. So they maintained on-farm practices without chemical inputs that we now call regenerative farming. And so it's regenerative in the sense that if you were using chemical inputs and now you're going back to restoring soil health, you are regenerating the health of the soil. Farmers of color have been doing it all the time, which is why they get annoyed with the term regenerative. But, you know, here we are in a place where 96% of these farmers that are white that probably did have access to the capital and probably did embrace a lot of this agrochemical model, realizing it destroyed their soil. And just as we have the microbiome of the gut, we have the microbiome of the soil. So the first step is do no harm. And that begins by removing the chemical inputs then what are you going to do? So they're learning that instead of spending money on the chemical input model, they're spending money on this sort of soil stewardship model and learning how to restore the health of the soil. And there's so many different practices that can be employed. You know, you get really like 
on farm wonky pretty fast, but there are a lot of things that farmers can do on farm to actually build soil health. And that's the transition. And so that's what we do at Replant is, you know, we'll help finance if it's cover crops, putting cover crops on soil really helps you know, restore soil health. It can draw carbon from the atmosphere. It can hold on to water. It can hold on to nutrients. So instead of standing on a farm that's been treated with chemical inputs where the soil is really damaged and doesn't hold the same nutrient quality and it doesn't hold the same water content, it can't capture carbon the same way. When you transition a farm using these regenerative and organic practices, all of a sudden soil becomes this vibrant living thing again that can serve in such an amazing capacity, not just with the potatoes that we're pulling out of it, but also its ability, you know, to assist in, in climate, you know, when it's drawing down carbon. So I think, you know, I was with a bunch of scientists a couple of years ago and I said, you know, when do we really like in a big enough number, wake up to the fact that soil has this incredible power because I felt so stupid that I hadn't really been aware. And, you know, this was a few years ago, but they said I was probably 10 years prior. So it's probably about 15 years ago now, you know, where they started to really understand the magnitude of what the soil could do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you learn that, then you're like, why are we not elevating these farmers? You know, they're doing so much for us that none of us can do. I mean, yes, I have a garden, but not to the extent that is required the way our farmers serve our country. So not only are they putting food on the table, but as they transition to these better practices, they're improving water quality on all of the areas around their farms. They're serving in this incredible role in climate solution, you know, with soil's ability to draw down and hold carbon. And I thought, you know, we really need to flip the script here. And our farmers, to me, are total superheroes and the ones really brave right now. They're going through this initial transition. The farmers of color that always held it, you know, those are the superheroes. So, you know, when people are like, oh, your book, your book, I'm like, look, I'm just amplifying the work of some extraordinary people that, you know, in many cases, I'm very, very grateful to know. And it, you know, it just kind of continues. And so I think it gets back to that courage is contagious stuff. It's just, you know, be brave enough to address the cognitive dissonance. That takes a lot of courage. Be brave enough to have these hard conversations and do it with a kindness and a compassion. And then be brave enough to figure out how to start to make change. And I think, you know, my advice there is don't be afraid of baby steps. You know, we've taught kids how to ride bikes or, you know, wean them from sippy cups. It does not happen overnight. You know, most change does not happen overnight. So give yourself permission to make progress, you know, and this isn't like about being perfect out of the gate. And I think probably the, you know, one example I have of that is the very first speaking engagement I was ever asked to give six people came. I invited my pediatrician. I invited a friend who was a nutritionist. And then there were four others that actually came. And, you know, that's how I started my speaking engagements. And now, you know, to be invited to speak at some of these events and summits um, that I speak at, There's just, again, that profound gratitude of not being afraid to start small. You know, I think what I was the most afraid of is if I did nothing. And so, you know, again, you've got to start where you stand with what you have and know that it's going to inspire someone in some way that you never could have imagined. Absolutely. And I I think it's really important to reemphasize the fact that slow and steady wins. I remind Mm -hmm. people all the time that 
neither you nor I, you know, overnight made so many changes, you know, both personally and professionally. And, and certainly your advocacy is really critically important. You had touched on the soil piece, and I would love for you to speak a little bit more about this. I know that when I talk to people, people say, well, I eat all organic, you know, why is the soil quality even an issue? And I always usually focus on magnesium, you know, magnesium depleted soil, but I know there are a lot of other nutrients that are as important, if not more important than that. And when we're differentiated between, you know, the current kind of standard practices for the way soil is in terms of composition versus the, you know, regenerative agricultural side or, or the, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of biases in the farming industry and who had access to these chemicals and fertilizers and those that had been for many years doing more traditional farming methods. What is the difference between the types of soil composition? This is one of those nerdy questions. I'm just innately curious about this. I know that my grandmother used to always tell me that if there were a lot of worms in the soil, that was a good sign because she had this massive garden in her backyard in Colorado. Yeah, so that's a great question. And my brain goes to the experts on that. And that I would say is Ray Archuleta. And he is with an organization called Understanding Ag. But you can see him in action in a documentary called Kiss the Ground. And so if you really want to understand what happens when you transition farmland to the soil, Kiss the Ground documentary is beautifully done. It took seven years for them to make, and they do a really good job of showing and highlighting you know, those changes. If you're with Ray Archuleta in person, which I have had the luck to be with him as he's given these demonstrations, A, you kind of feel like you're in church because he's just like, you know, <laughs> preaching this thing in such a big way. And he's so passionate and coming from such a full heart because he knows it changed his life and it changed the life of his farm. But I think probably the best demonstration that they give, it's just fascinating, is he's got like this giant flatbed with all these different soil types on it, you know, these different kind of blocks from, you know, a soil type that is very conventional, treated with a lot of chemical inputs to something that's regenerative, something that's organic, to actually a piece of asphalt. And what he does is he takes like a shower head and he rains mm-hmm. on across all of these different beds, you know, and then underneath what he's got is like giant mason jars that are capturing whatever comes through. And I think the most fascinating thing is that when you have really damaged soil, the water doesn't go through. It just runs right off the top. And so that jar underneath is literally capturing nothing because that water infiltration is the term that water infiltration is almost non-existent. Whereas when you have really healthy soil, that water is able to permeate through this Mm -hmm. living, vibrant cell. It's not like a piece of concrete comes through and you can see Mm -hmm. what the water holds, you know, by what is captured in the soil. And I think the water part of this conversation is to me, my North star. I think it is completely under mentioned. It is not tabled enough in terms of how critical water security is to food security, which is to national security. And this is where I totally look at some of our policymakers and I'm like, we have got to be braver here. Without water, our food system goes into immediate crisis and we are getting dangerously close to that point. You see these headlines out of California with some of the reservoirs here in Colorado with the Colorado River. We see the headlines 
So we need to make sure that when we are using water on farm, we are using it on soil that can absorb it and we're not wasting this incredibly precious resource. When we're treating the farms with all the chemicals and then using this liquid gold, which is water, you know, across the farm and it's not even being captured, it's not even being absorbed, that waste to me is criminal. So as we transition farms to regenerative agriculture, I think the policy play there is water, you know, that as you can show, for example, the work that we're doing in the Central Valley in California with almond growers shows that as they transition their orchards to regenerative agriculture, there's a 500% increase in water infiltration. So water's ability to actually get into the soil. I mean, that is huge. And so you think about a state like California, that's just in total water crisis drought. And to me, we're only a few years out before the states are going to start to say regenerative practices for water conservation and water infiltration. And to really recognize that, you know, none of this is possible without this asset water that we all just completely take for granted. I'm the one in my house, you know, it's, it's totally my thing where it's like, if a kid leaves water in a cup, I water the plant with it. If a kid leaves water <laughs> in a cup, I'll put it in the dog's bowl. I never mm-hmm. pour water down the drain. It is just, it's liquid gold to me. So, you know, I hope that there's a growing awareness of that soon too. Well, it's really interesting because you and I both share that predilection. We're in a rental right now and building a house, which is supposed to be done in a couple of days, which is very exciting. And because we normally drink filtered water and are not doing that right now, anytime there's water anywhere, it gets in a plant into the dogs, but I, we have two dogs and I'm always yelling at my kids to turn the shower because they'll turn the shower on and go down the hallway and grab something. And it's five minutes later. I'm like, you're wasting all this water. Mm-hmm. But I've actually heard that some of the crops, even I don't know if it was almonds or if it was avocados, but it was talking about how much water is required in a kind of conventional farming situation to bring a crop of almonds to market. It was unbelievable. I don't recall what the statistic was. I wish that I did, but it was surprising for those of us that are not in the farming industry, how much of that resource is being utilized in order to, you know, I think almonds are like a quote unquote, hot, fairly clean, healthy food. Mm -hmm. And so people think, oh, this is great, but you're actually contributing to the problem. If you're not learning more about this resource for sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think again, like the education around all of this is so important. And, you know, to me, it's like, you could put it in a biology class in middle school, you could put it in a math class in middle school. There'd be so many ways you could teach this and it's so relevant, you know, and I do think as a generation of parents that were sort of told one thing and then woke up to the reality of what's actually happening. I'm grateful that our kids are exposed, you know, to this double standard and to this duplicity at an earlier age. So it's not like, you know, we had to sort of all sort of come to this moment where it was just so impossibly hard to hold the information because it challenged so much. Whereas I think I look at my kids who are now between the ages of 16 and 21 and like, they have a very healthy dose of skepticism. And it's partly yes, that, you know, they've had this mother that has advocated on behalf of children for their entire lives. But I also think, you know, they look at it in the political spectrum, they look at it environmentally. And I think, you know, one of the challenges we have as parents is that this generation of kids is sort of in this existential crisis a little bit because the leadership has failed them. And it's so clear that it has failed them consistently and across the board. So, you know, for me, one of the things I think that really can help address that is we talk so much about how important biodiversity is, you know, for farm health and soil health. I think diversity is critical in terms of governance. So whether we're talking about local leaders, state leaders, federal leaders, or on corporate boards, the more diverse that you can 
make those organizations the better for everyone because we all come with such a different experience. And so if the organizations have been primarily white male, which the finance industry has, you know, it's no wonder that we have a broken food system that has been primarily white male because it has lacked the voices and the diversity and that collective wisdom. So, you know, to me, the more that we can really sort of say, if we're going to talk about biodiversity on farm, we got to talk about diversity at the boardroom. And it's starting to happen. You know, that's something I think that needs to accelerate because I think women, especially in the food industry, bring incredible insight and knowledge, especially as mothers, you know, through what we've navigated through pregnancy. And to dismiss that, to me, is incredibly risky. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 
or 12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. And I think having an echo chamber, you know, where you're just surrounded by people that all agree with everything that you're doing and don't question anything is dangerous Mm -hmm. on so many levels. Now, I definitely want to touch on genetically modified foods. The reason being is that I still think there's this misconception about what GMOs are. I know initially when I read your book and I was saying to my husband, we were talking about soybeans and cotton and corn is just a couple of examples the degree of cognitive dissonance when I was talking to patients, when I worked for a large cardiology practice for 16 years and 95% of the time it would fall on deaf ears, but I would start just saying, you know, we need to be concerned about these things. And so, you know, you touched on how corn, it has these intrinsic pesticides or insecticides that are grown with the plant. So you're ingesting these things. What are some of the other kind of concerns about GMOs? As you mentioned previously, there's no long-term human health studies on these things, but obviously we're starting to make these, you know, as you mentioned, correlation is not causation, but we're starting to kind of look to see, are we healthier preceding, you know, the advent of GMOs into our food supply, or are we dealing with more health issues? And there's no question there, but what are some of the other more common GMOs that people may be thinking of? If you're looking at food labels, just being aware, I tell people all the time, you know, soybeans and sugar are two of the more common things that we'll see in the food supply that we're exposed to on a daily basis, but also, you know, cotton, just cotton clothing um, is also another big one. Yeah. I mean, the soybean thing was pretty gut-wrenching because, you know, in the early years of motherhood, I buy these bags of edamame from Costco and thought I was, you know, giving the kids something that was a healthy snack and to learn that, genetically engineered soy had been introduced under the name Roundup Ready Soy so that it could be treated with increasing doses of Roundup. Well, Roundup's a weed killer that you walk into Home Depot, you know, and you're able to sort of buy it off the shelf there to treat the weeds in your yard. As I thought about that, I thought, you know, would I want a thing of Roundup on my kitchen table to treat these soybeans that I'm feeding my kids? No. And that to me was one of the first sort of offenses of sort of saying like, look, you want to claim your stuff is safe, fine, claim it's safe, but give me an informed choice. And we weren't given that choice because we didn't know that those soybeans had been genetically engineered. You know, the assumption was they're the same soybeans that my grandmother would have fed her boys 50 years ago. And that was a bad assumption. So, you know, to realize that Roundup Ready soybeans have been created to withstand increasing doses of Roundup is a pretty tough thing to swallow, literally. And then in the last several years, we've seen these global lawsuits around glyphosate. Well, glyphosate is the lead ingredient in this roundup. And so those lawsuits globally have absolutely exploded to the point that 
Bear, who acquired Monsanto, is trying to just settle these things mm-hmm. because it's billions and billions of dollars worth of litigation and lawsuits that they're confronting. You know, it's interesting because retailers are starting to pull some of these products off shelf. You know, schools are starting to realize that they shouldn't be treating our kids' soccer fields, you know, with these products. So again, those headlines, as hard as they are to read and to see the heartache in the families that have suffered, it's bringing a global awareness, you know, to the fact that the ingredients in Roundup have been linked to the possibility that can cause cancer in people. And so, you know, the industry is going to like flood as much science at us saying, no, 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 they're safe, they're safe, they're safe, just like the tobacco industry did, which is why I think it's really important to look to other countries and say, you know, what is happening around the world? In France and New Zealand, they do not even allow genetically engineered crops to be planted in the soil because they don't want the risk of environmental toxicity. Other genetically engineered products, there is something called recombinant bovine growth hormone, and it's a hormone that's injected into dairy cows to help them make more milk. Again, all of our trading partners, developed countries around the world said, no way, not enough science, that looks too risky, we're not going to do it. So they never allowed this artificial growth hormone to be injected into their dairy cows. You know, here in the United States, it was put into our dairy supply. We were not told it was not labeled. So, you know, that kind of duplicity, I think, as an American, just goes against who we are and what we stand for. You know, this whole freedom of choice. How can you have freedom of choice if you're not told about these monumental changes that were put in place the way, you know, our dairy is produced, the way that corn is produced, the way that soy is produced? So for me, you know, that call to action has always been very loud. And that is, you know, give us this right to know, give us the right to choose, give us the freedom of choice. I think it's really critically important. And I think for many people, they may very well, as they're listening to this podcast, this might be the first time they've actually heard this information. And so it's challenging. I mean, when you hear it, you're like, no way, there's no way, there's no way. And I think it's, I was like that, like, there's no way this is, can't have happened. And I had plenty of people that are very dear to me say the same thing. Like, you know, there's no way that this has happened. And it was really exposing the double standard globally Mm -hmm. that other countries have said, this stuff has not been proven safe. We don't want it in our food supply. We don't want it in our food system. If it's in there, it's absolutely got to be labeled. And we haven't done any of that. So, you know, I think the challenge is unfortunately Because, as we mentioned earlier, the subsidies go towards these genetically engineered crops, those are the cheaper ingredients and those are the cheaper products in the grocery store. And to me, that's criminal. Mm -hmm. It's criminal on a lot of levels. I think, you know, the farmers that are growing things without the chemicals, why are we not subsidizing that? And then on top of that, the farmers that are growing things without chemicals, they're actually the ones that are financially penalized and have to pay to have their products labeled as organic. And I thought, you know, that's crazy because those are actually the products that have existed for thousands of years. Genetically engineered products are new to the scene over the last 20 or 30, as documented at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And the ownership, the responsibility should be on the guys that are producing products with these newer genetically engineered ingredients. And unfortunately, that's not the case. So, you know, if you look at it sort of as a math equation, 
I think people, once we get to a place where organic is equally as affordable and accessible and someone can make that transition without it being a financial hardship, then it'll accelerate a lot faster. And so that's really a huge focus of my work is how do you make this transition at scale so that this isn't a financial hardship to somebody. And I learned that, you know, over the last several years, work I've done, you know, within the food allergy community, when the price of EpiPens took off, you know, I thought, these are families that can't pay their mortgage. They can't pay their car payment. They've got to buy an EpiPen. How in the world am I going to talk to them about organic? You can't, you can't. Like until you can solve that economic equation for American families, we haven't landed at the solution. So that's where all of this work has led me today is how do I address that economic hardship? How do we make this affordable and accessible to everybody? And how do we make it affordable and accessible to the CEOs that are calling the shots? Because at 1% of our supply chain, that's not likely. It's too expensive for the CEOs, which is why it's too expensive for most of us. Yeah. And it's interesting that you brought up the EpiPen situation, because I remember during that time frame, obviously I have a child that has to have, you know, a set of EpiPens with him and a set of EpiPens at school. And, you know, as I was leaving Walgreens, I said to the pharmacist, what are people, cause I was paying $200 with insurance during that timeframe. I said, what are people doing that don't have insurance coverage? And he said, they're not taking the EpiPen. And I said, that's abhorrent, crazy, abhorrent. I said, to think that there are children that are not protected because the parents are making a choice and it's clearly not a choice they want to make, but maybe they have to pay for a mortgage or rent or food and between that and getting a, an EpiPen for their child's. So the last thing I really want to touch on is the peanut piece, because I have a child with a peanut allergy. And if I recall, that was the chapter that completely got me spun out of control. And I think I went home and showed my husband and underlined a bunch of things. I have the, the your book is earmarked in multiple areas. And so you talk a lot about how much peanut allergies have doubled. I think it was between the incidents had doubled between 1997 and 2002, quadrupled in the last 13 years. Let's talk a little bit about peanuts and peanut allergies and some of the things that may have contributed to why we're seeing such an escalating rate of allergies in our children. Because you know, on many, many levels, you know, I certainly, I think I was advised while I was pregnant with my oldest son who who just turned 16, not to consume peanuts while I was breastfeeding or pregnant because of concerns about this, you know, potential transmission of, you know, peanut, you know, allergens to him while he was younger. And and now we're actually seeing research that suggests the opposite, introduce it earlier. So they don't end up developing allergies. Yeah, it's head spinning as a mother because, you know, you're told one thing and then six years later, another study comes out telling you the exact opposite. So you go on a total guilt trip because of what you've done. Mm -hmm. And it's really manipulative. It's emotionally manipulative. And it's completely unfair because it puts the burden of the responsibility on the mother when it should be on the producer of the food itself. So, you know, something that we've learned about peanut production, a couple of things, actually, it is highly, highly treated with chemical inputs. Mm -hmm. It is one of the most you know, the industry hates this word, but it is one of the most toxic products out there, you know, because of how many things are sprayed on peanuts to keep them from molding and all these other things that they deal with on the, on the farm. So there's that piece. So, you know, I would say, are we allergic to peanuts or are we allergic to what's been done to them? Because what has been done to peanuts today is so different again, to what our grandmothers experienced 50 years ago. And then I think, you know, the other piece of this gets back to soil. So 
peanut is rotated with a cotton crop and cotton is one of the largest genetically engineered crops in the world. It is also one of the crops that is the most highly, highly treated with chemical sprays and inputs. So you think about a cotton farm and what is done on that farm to grow that cotton, all of the chemicals that are sprayed on that farm and what it does to the soil. So not only what it does to the soil, but the soil then holds those chemical inputs in the soil. So then when you rotate a crop, what that means is where that cotton was growing, when cotton season's done, you pull the cotton plants out and you plant peanuts. So you're planting peanuts in the soil that has been treated for that cotton plant. And a peanut, any plant absorbs what's in the soil in its growth. So you're basically planting a crop into a really, really chemically abused soil and then you're chemically abusing the crop. So the industry would say, you're not chemically abusing. These are you know, inflammatory words. I think if anybody saw what was done on farm, they would not choose those products. So you know, the industry can, they wanna show a highlight reel of how you know, 365 days, what these processes look like, that, you know, then by all means do it. But I think as mothers, if we had the choice between planting our food in soil that has been chemically treated and then chemically treating our food versus planting our food in soil that is healthy and vibrant and not chemically treating it and stewarding the soil through, you know, cover cropping and these other practices. It's pretty clear what a mom would choose. So, you know, when I learned all of this about the peanut, I immediately switched my family to organic peanut butter. I thought this is absolutely shocking. And, you know, again, I think it's how can we have an informed choice? You know, how can we let consumers and families and parents know that this has happened? And it is hard to digest. I really understand how hard it is to hear this information for the first time and want to dismiss it and want to shoot the messenger and want to marginalize it or say it's not true. And that's why, you know, again, it's got to be affordable and accessible to everybody to transition out of this chemically treated stuff into something that hasn't been abused the same way. And, you know, is organic perfect? No, it is not perfect. And I'm not going to be one of those people that says it's perfect. But again, let's bring a transparency to these conversations. And let's think about how we're allocating our resources as a country, you know, how we're allocating the precious resources of both farmers and water. And then think about how a consumer can make an informed choice. And I thought, you know, as I worked with the industry, as I worked with the food industry, I said, you know, transparency is actually your friend. As intimidating as it is to just go fully transparent, when you do, then all of a sudden, you know, you know, your consumer is making an informed choice. And that way he or she is telling you exactly what they want going forward instead of sort of you getting these misguided numbers because they think they're buying one thing. And then all of a sudden when they wake up and realize they're not, they're going to pivot really quickly. So, you know, I think the more that the industry embraces transparency and they're getting better about it, you know, the better. And then I think the other thing that thankfully has happened is a lot of the CEOs of these multinational food companies that were not happy with me in the beginning of the work have all stepped down. And now we have almost complete turnover at the top of these companies with CEOs who have children with autism, or they have a sister with breast cancer, or they have a child with food allergies, they know they're buying something organic for their own families. And so they're actually 
working with us towards the solution in a way that 10 years ago, you know, that wasn't the case. So that's where it's really exciting right now. And I think to have platforms like yours and your voice, which is such an amazing one, you know, to continue to sort of say, we want this, we want this, you know, yes, this is right. Yes, this is true. To be able to share this kind of work, your work, you know, with the food industry itself to say, look, this is a platform and so many people are engaged and following in this conversation it's a focus group in and of itself, you know, that the food industry can benefit from. So, you know, to me, I think, thankfully, we're in a place where that dialogue and those conversations are so collaborative now, they're not antagonistic the way they were 10 years ago. And so to be in that place where executives are trying to learn, they're trying to figure out financially, how do they do this? You know, one of the biggest challenges is, you know, the financial institutions that own these firms and are just driving them, you know, to produce the cheapest stuff at the highest margin. You know, you're starting to see companies like Danone say, you know what, we're going to be a B Corp because we recognize that can't be the only thing we focus on. And I think more in the food industry will start to shift. And, you know, the B Corp certification for those that aren't familiar, it basically says, you know, instead of it just being the financial institutions that are the shareholders is recognizing all of us are stakeholders in this. You sitting at your kitchen table, my kids sitting at theirs, and that there's a responsibility not just to the financial returns, but to the impact that their products are having on all of us. And that's where this B Corp movement, as it continues to take off, you know, is really exciting to me because it lets people put their values into play in the corporate world. Well, I can't thank you enough for our time together today. What are you working on next? What are you doing right now that is unique or fresh for 2021? I know we're in interesting times. <laughs> I think most of the world is feeling like it was on pause for about 18 months. Yeah. So, you know, for us, we are raising $2 billion so that we can deploy that money into the supply chains directly to farmers who want to transition to regenerative and organic agriculture, who want to break the chemical input model and they want to break the debt levels that are attached to that chemical input model. And the way we're doing that is we're going back to these big food companies and the small ones and the organizations that have relationships with farmers and they're saying, who are your top eight people, guys, women, who are the top 10 you know, within your supply chain that are really ready to make this transition that are recognized for the leadership that have the courage mm -hmm. that's required to really lead here. And it's really interesting because whether you're talking to Danone or Anheuser-Busch and Bev or McCain, which is this amazing potato grower that's privately held, but produces about a third of the world's French fries, they know exactly who those farmers are that are ready to sort of lead on this. And the food companies themselves are really excited because all of a sudden they've got this amazing story to tell because they're transitioning their farmland towards products and offerings that we now want as 21st century consumers. Plus, they have this amazing climate story they get to tell where it's like, hey, as we built out soil health, here are metrics around water, here are metrics around bees, here are metrics around carbon that they couldn't tell before. And so it's been a lot of fun to work with both the farmers and the food industry in a way that people are really excited about what's in front of us. So that's the work today. And I think, you know, for me, like really recognizing that economic tension of, I don't want to hear this because I can't afford organic. So how do we make organic affordable and accessible to everyone? It's with these supply chains. So to me, that's the next chapter of the work. It's something that, you know, I'll be working on until we've really converted these things. You know, for 1% of our supply chain is organic. I would hope in 10 years time, you know, we're well into double digits because I think it only takes three to five years to transition off of the chemical input model into organic capital is what's required and that timeline so that the farmer can make the transition. 
So that's the work that we're doing. And it means we get to work a lot of amazing farmers and there are a lot of amazing educators out there like the Kiss the Ground team. I mean, as a resource and a tool to be able to teach people what this is about. And then inside these multinational food companies, they're just so amazing people, you know, who are really ready to sort of take the lead and push these things through. So, you know, that's where it is today. So hopefully in 10 years, we can look back and we can say, gosh, we were 1% then, and now we're at whatever double digit we are. I can't thank you enough for your work and, you know, leading with gratitude and, you know, a mother's heart and courage because, there are a lot of other people that would have learned some of the information that you did and would not have been able to take action. They would have been in a a state of paralysis. So what's the easiest way for us to connect with you? If listeners would like to check out your website, check you out on social media, where are you most active? Yeah. Find my website at robinobrien.com. And then across social media, it's Robin O'Brien USA. Please reach out and share your stories. I love hearing from people. You know, I've heard from farmers who read my book and lost 30 pounds and they're the sweetest like before and after pictures you could ever see. You know, I've heard from people whose lives have been changed like yours, others whose children, you know, have now started businesses that are somehow tied to this. A lot of people have gotten involved in policy, which is such an important piece of this. Again, like I never in a million years thought I would ever be involved in policy. I was never brought up in any kind of, you know, political way to be active in that arena. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. And my invitation there is, you know, I thought I was going to be like confronted by these old people behind these giant mahogany desks. And when you get into (laughs) any policymaker's office, it's all these like 20 something year olds that are totally connected to this work. They have grown up with a child with food allergies or, you know, some other condition if it wasn't them themselves. And so you've got a lot of really willing collaborators, you know, around the table in all these different capacities. So my advice would be leverage what you're good at with what you love to make change. Don't try to fit somebody else's mold. Don't try to fit someone else's version. You've got to leverage your unique skill set with the things that you're uniquely passionate about and engage there. And, you know, it can be things from like movie nights at school to book clubs or it's policy, you know, whatever your thing is, do your thing, because I think that's what the world really needs. Thank you, Robin. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. 